Hello and welcome to the Noodlebugs podcast, where we discuss aspects of the natural world. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hello everybody, today I am speaking to Rob Redpath, who knows more about bees than anyone else I know. Uh, I'll let him introduce himself. Yeah, hi, Rob Redpath here. I've got a bee shop in Brunswick East, and I sell beekeeping equipment and bees and honey and related things, and I got into it a little bit by accident after years being a teacher, because I had to find another job and I went to the skill my father taught me. So my father was a beekeeper that had 400 hives and traded in honey. And I just knew about it from growing up with him. Wow, that's pretty cool. So is that really how you first got interested in bees as a child? That's right. Dad would take me out to collect a swarm. And when I was 13, he gave me a beehive to look after in the backyard so that I would learn about it. Mm-hmm. So I was one, I've, I've always wondered this question because I don't really know much about insects. Well, actually, that's a lie. When the queen dies in a hive, how do they get another queen? They find an egg that's one or two days old and they give it a diet of royal jelly, which is kind of a little bit like milk for human beings, a rich food that the workers produce from a gland in their body. And that rich food will turn that egg, if they feed that to the egg, into a queen bee. Mm -hmm. So what happens if a human eats it then? Well, if a human being eats it, they get some nutritional value and it's safe to eat. But of course, it's designed for bee biology, not for human biology. So for us, it's just a food which won't do anything much except give us a little bit of nutrition. But for bees, when they're growing, it triggers genes in their chromosomal makeup that will change the body shape. Okay, that's really interesting because I've been wondering that question for a while and, well, now I know. So, how, so I, a while ago when I spoke to you, I was wondering, you were talking a lot about the web of life, which is how everything kind of plays its part in nature. So how do bees play their part in the web of life? Well, in, in many ways, and there's a few ways of understanding their place in the web of life. Uh, In evolutionary terms, bees evolved about 115 million years ago, which is a very long time ago. And it's about the same time that flowers appeared on the planet. And they, the scientists think that some of the wasps Uh, which were eating other insects, decided to eat pollen from flowers. And flowers had just come on the planet. And the flowers 
then worked out that they could pollinate from these insects coming to them. It would spread pollen around. So this is an example of what they call coevolution, where the action of one animal affects another living thing, the plant. And the form of the plant affects how the animal, the small insect, develops. So there we have it. The bee modified its shape and its function to suit flowers. And the flowers modified their shape and function to suit bees. Wow, that's really interesting and something I would have never learned otherwise. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of when I interviewed Fam Charco. And she said that there were cleaner shrimps who helped goby fish. I think that's what they were called. And they evolved to be like that. And the, the cleaner shrimp would clean basically the goby fish's home and the goby fish would protect it. So kind of... Like we, on this podcast, we've had a bit of a we've had a bit of a what is it called connection, continual like theme we've got here, because we've always got animals helping each other. Like we've had fungus and trees, which was the first podcast. Yes. And then the second was also fungus, and then the third one was just about nature in general. The fourth one was yet again. It had more co-evolution is what you call it and we've got this here again and it just seems to be appearing everywhere and now i really know that co-evolution is something really central and mainstream in nature which i think is really cool yes yeah for sure and uh well animals and plants an important thing they have to do is reproduce so make new bees make new plants and the plants worked out that uh they can create seeds better if insects take the pollen to other plants and then they get uh, a nice variation in the genetic makeup of the new plant. So if you can literally change the genes of an animal just by having it exist by another animal, if eventually humans, some human, you know how some families tend to have pets and others don't, and yes. sometimes like your family has a cat, and because just because your family had a cat, you always you get a cat. Just just like you you're not even, you won't even think about it. It's probably just in your brain that I need a cat which is not very good in Australia, but we that's not really the point of the question. The point of the question is that perhaps, maybe eventually people with pets will evolve differently to the rest of, rest of humanity. Yeah, well, I think that's a bit of a long bow, and we'd have to tease out a few issues there. There's got to be some reproductive advantage in some other form. So I think it's... Yeah, I'm not sure if just having pets would be enough to make a different kind of human being. Like, there's behavioural reasons for being different, but what we're talking about with the bees is more like the genetics, and that this is where uh, you've got to understand how evolution works. If there's a genetic mutation, which happens, it's an advantage, 
then that means that you'll get more of that type of animal. So it's very slow. It takes generations and generations. And I can't see that the having pets would go over many generations of parent-child, parent-child, parent-child. It might, but it's uh, there's so many other things coming in there as well. Yeah, I suppose that's true, but it is it is a theory, and, and theoretically, it could be possible. I'm not saying it is going to happen, but I'm saying it could happen. Yeah. Not definitely, but it's it's possible. I'd say. Yeah, definitely possible, but um, we could speculate on that. But I think we might talk more about the web of life and bees where they come into it. So. Uh, bees then, because of this co-evolution with flowers, have become very important in the modern world for pollinating. And if you get good pollination, then you get high uh, yields of fruit and seeds. Mm-hmm. And fruit and seeds are a very important food for us all. Mm-hmm. So... To be really frank about it, we there's something like 30,000 species of bees in the world, and I've got expert in just one species, which is called Apis mellifera. It's the species of bee that's been kept in Europe and Asia by people for probably 10,000 years, I would say, which is a short time for how long the bee's been around, if you remember. But... So human beings have exploited bees to pollinate their their fruit trees for a long time. Which is not really fair when you think about it. Where's the unfairness? Well, you always think about animals, or bees in particular, really. They make so much for us. But what do we really do for them? We care for their hives and we care for them, but does that really... Is that really as much as what they do for us? They make our food, they make our candles, they they pollinate all of our flowers and our crops, and despite them doing all that, we never give we never take the time, or a lot of us never take the time, just to I don't know, plant a flower in our garden or do something that really helps bees, which is why I think beekeepers are a really important part and a really important job to have people doing, which is why I really appreciate you making our honey and caring for the bees there. Yeah, well, I think if we look at it like human beings and if you get something, you should give something. But the bees don't think like human beings. The bees have only got one way of thinking, that is... Go to the flower, get the nectar, get the pollen, bring it back to the hive, feed the growing bees, make sure the queen's happy, make sure they lay eggs, and every two years, create a new beehive with a swarm. Okay. And so if they're doing that, they're happy with the deal because that's all they're looking for. Uh, But if they had, like, human minds, they'd go... Gosh, we give them the honey, we give them the beeswax, and they've done nothing for us at all. Nothing comes back to us at all. But luckily, they don't think like that. I would not like to be attacked by a swarm of bees. 
So I'm happy their brains aren't that big. Oh, well, look, they will they will attack people if they uh, feel that the bees are threatening their baby bees yeah. or trying to take their honey. So we have to manage that when we take the honey off them and protect ourselves. So how do you take the honey off them? You put on your bee suit. You wait to the right month of the year, summer. So now? So about now. You open the hive, you look for a honeycomb that they've filled and put a little wax cap on all the cells. Then you know the honey's ripe. And you just lift it out of the hive. Now, they see that happening and they can get a little bit aggravated. But you take it away and the bee suit stops them stinging you and they don't have much of a memory so about two hours later they've forgotten it's happened and they're back at work wait so when they sting you on your suit when they sting your suit does that do they die when that happens they usually do because their sting's got little barbs on it like like a fish hook and the barbs get stuck in the material and it pulls the sting out of their body and once their body's damaged like that they die that's sad well it's sad for a human being but bees have got a very small brain and they really don't understand or care whether they're alive or dead they just do what they've got to do for the hive and if it should create their death they don't really care or no that's just what's got to happen so you're saying that so you're saying that bees are like have no real sense of individualism they and they're more of a hive mind well the other interesting thing about bees is they are what is are called a super organism so that means the animal is really the hive so we're human beings. We, we don't live alone. We've got to live in a society. But bees, they, they've got no choice about it. They only function as a hive. And you need to think of the queen bee and the drone as being like the reproductive organs of the body and the comb being like the inside of the body where they store food and the the worker bees being kind of like the function of the mouth bringing food into the body so i want you to think of a beehive as one animal and they term it a super organism so what about solitary bees yeah a different way of operating so at the start there were only solitary bees and then bees that form colonies evolved later. So they found that there's an evolutionary advantage in working as a group. If they found there's an evolutionary advantage in growing as a colony, how come all of them didn't go into a colony? How come there's still solitary bees today? Well, the beautiful thing about nature is that it's got many what they call niches in nature. So different animals different bee species exploit different what we call niches so 
the solitary bees will have some advantage over the colony forming bees and they'll be able to use some flowers that the colony forming bees can't access or go to a different spot where the colony forming bees can't go. So every animal's got to be looked at separately but there'll be a niche of nature that they can't get at but some other insect can. Okay, so each, so saying basically that each bee and each solitary bee and each species is all different for different reasons and every bee is met or things maybe don't evolve to the best possible to get the best possible thing that we all think we understand about evolution well in evolution we all think that things are trying to evolve the best they can so basically whatever makes the most bees or whatever makes the most most deer or you know the best possible way to survive for longest but if that was true then why isn't everything sort of really similar every animal in nature is so different you would have thought they would all have something really in common if yeah no that's a really good beautiful question and it's quite hard to answer but you'll find that there's particular insects that can only go to one kind of flower or there's particular like take a koala for instance in australia they can only eat one kind of gum leaf and there's not too many other animals that want to eat gum leaves so they've found a spot just eating these gum leaves and if we cut down all the forests then the koala will die out so we've got some animals that are generalists uh, a generalist animal would be like people and we're pretty good at getting food for ourselves out of many plants and many situations but there's other animals that can only operate with their kind of plant, with their one particular tropical climate, or their one particular Arctic climate, or whatever it happens to be, so that they become very specialised for one spot in the world. So we've got to be careful as people because, you know, we're a thinking being, but we're also greedy and we cut down too much forest. And when we cut down that forest, we're cutting out animals that can only operate in that bit of forest or with those plants. So we've really got a responsibility to the web of life to make sure that we keep a lot of habitat. And so rather than talk about just one plant, habitats, all the plants that are in a spot and the weather and the animals that go with it. It's everything together. And it all gets designed to fit in like a jigsaw. And we've got to be careful not to upset the various areas. A lot of people I know that I'm really good friends with just don't seem to think like that. And I feel like that's really important. But... Well, questions like yours help people to learn. Thanks. <laughs> so, 
then what's the difference between organic honey from like your shop for example be sustained shout out to him <laughs> and supermarket honey well the or- organics about how people are affecting the world and so people use chemicals sometimes to grow plants because they will try to use chemicals to kill insects or they put chemicals in the soil and uh, in some sense that's poisoning the world well, in fact not in some sense it's definitely poisoning the, the world and so you get small amounts of those poisons potentially if you eat fruit that's had too much chemical used in its growth um, and it's not only us worrying about what we eat, those chemicals are in the environment then. And then they go in the water, and then slowly, slowly we make the world a worse place to be, where things don't grow as they should, and animals don't grow as they should. So we've gotta be very careful with the chemical use. So, And the difference between supermarket honey and honey from my shop well, there it could be okay. I don't want to knock the supermarkets. They do have organic brands, and um, but there can be more casual about. They blend a lot, and you can't always trust the supply chain. <laughs> and just to uh, there's something else I thought of. I want to tell you about um, the solitary bees. Uh, they think in the world somewhere thirty to forty thousand species of bees. Really, and that's a lot. It's of a bees. lot. And of those thirty or forty thousand, we think there's about three hundred that form colonies. So they're like a super organism. And there's some that are kind of in between. They'll share looking after eggs with two or three other insects. So it's not just all by yourself or a colony with 40,000 bees. They think that there's some that will share a little bit with five or six in the same burrow uh, or hole in the tree. And that gives us a little clue as to how a colony might have evolved. There would have been steps that took them from being entirely by themselves to what they call semi-social, looking after their friend's egg. Well, maybe they don't have friends, maybe it's just another insect. Uh, To finally being like a colony with specialized roles. And there's other animals that have specialized roles. Let me think what they are. Ants, Mm -hmm. colonies of ants. Lots of ants. Um, And there's... Uh, wasps where bees came from and what's another one oh termites termites so whenever you get that super organism you get specialised roles or casts so the casts in a beehive are the drone the drone's there to fertilise queens the queen the queen's there to lay eggs the worker, the worker's there to do all the other jobs, collect the honey, collect the pollen, clean the hive, feed the young. And if you look at ants, they can have 
10 or 15 casts. So in an ant. ant colony, there'll be big ants that are there for defence. Small ants that are there to look after the nursery. And so on. But I'm not going to talk about ants because I don't know enough about them. I know quite a lot about ants, actually. <laughs> but I, I've... I uh, I have quite a hatred for ants, even though I really love them. <laughs> no, the thing is, I love I love ants and I love bugs and I love insects, but when they actually bite you, it hurts. <laughs> yes, well, that's their little protective thing. Yes. Oh, and I do want to tell you about two species of bees in Australia that form colonies. Uh, they're about half the size of the bees that most people know about. Western honeybee, Apis mellifera, and the species names for the Australian ones are Ostroplebia australis, and they live in northern Australia, all the way down into the north part of New South Wales, and another species called Tetragonella carbonaria, which is a strange name, sounds like pasta to me, but they live... Uh, on the coast, the east coast of Australia, all the way from north of Brisbane down to the Victorian border. And they form comb, but they don't have a sting. And I thought about them when you were saying about how you don't like getting stung. And their defence mechanism is a bite that irritates. Ouch. Which, um, it's not too bad actually, it's much easier than a sting. But it's irritating enough to maybe make you leave them alone a bit. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, they give out about three kilograms of honey a year. Wow. Comparing that to the Western honeybee that came to Australia in 1815 with the third fleet, which might give us 100 kilograms of honey a year. Wow, that's a lot of honey. It's a lot of honey, and that's why those bees have been taken all around the world. Because people like them because they give us so much food. Mm. Food that we like too. Yes. I would also just like to mention, I revised my statement about, about hunting, hating ants. I mean, about hating bugs. Uh, I don't hate bugs. I love bugs. Except for one type, bull ants. I've been bitten by them twice. I hate them. <laughs> yeah, I've got a similar feeling on bull ants. So I just avoid them. But if we avoid them, they've achieved their purpose. They want yes. us to leave them alone. Yes. So it works. Yeah, it works. We stay away from them, they stay away from us. Good deal. Yeah, and bees the same. Um, uh, you leave bees alone once you work out they've got that very painful sting. Mm. I would not like to be stung by a bee. I haven't been stung by a bee for multiple years, I think, so that's good. Now, web of life. There's some other aspects we should tease out, perhaps. Anything else on your mind? Well, I was wondering if bees have anything to do with other ecosystems. Of course, they have their own ecosystem in their hive with all their classes and jobs and things that they do. But do the bees make deals with, like, other insects? Like, I know ants enslave aphids to, like, make honey juices or something i don't really know but they enslave aphids basically so i was wondering if bees do anything like that i'm not aware that they do anything quite equivalent to the aphids with ants i don't think they do 
No. They basically don't want other insects in their hive. And uh, so they guard the entrance and make sure other insects don't come in. Occasionally they'll get invaded. Uh, I saw a beautiful picture of a mouse that had invaded a beehive. The bees stung it so much the mouse died. Oh, that's sad. But it was too big to get out of the hive. And they thought, what are we going to do? We've got this big dead mouse in here now, causing a problem. So they mummified it with honey and covered it in propolis. And it dried out. And then it was just there. It didn't rot and cause a problem. And they just worked around it after that. Wow, the poor mouse. So, but mostly they just don't want other animals in their hive. Unless it's a honey eater, which they definitely don't want in their hive. Yeah. Um, what else? Trees, I want to tell you that trees help bees. They because the... They the sap from trees. And they also live inside the trees. Oh, and they live in a hole in the trunk. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I do want to tell you about another insect that works with bees called the wax moth. The wax moth is uh, a moth that's evolved especially to eat wax, beeswax, and lay its eggs in comb. Now, the bees don't mind this, but they throw the wax moths out as soon as they hatch and always keep it so you never know that there's a wax moth near the hive. But as soon as they should have to leave the comb because it's got too old the wax moth take over the wax moth eat out all the wax comb in the tree hollow that the bees have left and then the tree hollow gets eaten out by other slugs cockroaches and other insects the tree hollow now becomes completely empty and cleaned up by all the other insects the wax moth the cockroaches the snails, the slugs, and then it's ready for another bee colony to go in. So a new swarm will go in a couple of years after the old swarms left. It makes a, a fresh home. So I guess you could say that's what they call a symbiotic relationship, where one insect's life is kind of linked to the other insect's life. Or hive, hive, because you said that the you said that the bees were actually a super organism, and it was actually the hive who's the animal. Yeah. All right. Let's stick with that terminology. The hive works with the moth. Yes. They help each other. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> so, how do bees make their nest in the first place? They look for a hollow that's got a small entrance because that's easier to guard. They like the hollow to have a bit of height because that's easier to guard and harder for other insects to get at. And then they produce wax from their bodies. Actually, almost the most amazing thing about a bee, I think. The wax comes out of their abdomen underneath flakes that are very soft at the start, and then they form it into the comb. And then the comb acts as 
little, they make cells, many cells make up the comb, and the cells can hold honey, pollen, or a growing bee. Wow. Yeah, it is wow. I agree. <laughs> Very wow. So, uh, my f another question is, what are the native types of bees, and what ones were introduced? You also you already kind of answered this one, but I told you about two species of native bee, didn't I? Yeah, but where, like in Brunswick, in Brunswick, we've got like, uh, we've got the blue banded bee, we've got the Western bee. <laughs> Look, I don't know the names of all the bees. That's your thing, but. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're right, but I, I get what you're, you're saying. You want to know where they live. Yeah. Uh, well, they don't need a big space. Like a beehive needs a space at least the size of the speaker for your uh, record player. But wow. the native bees, they only need a tiny hole about the size of your finger or even smaller. That's tiny. And they'll find that in a tree or a wall or even in the dirt on the side of the bank of the creek or somewhere. A tiny hole will do for them to lay one egg or five eggs. Wow, that's not very many. So, if they live everywhere, do we have any bee? If they live everywhere, then do we have bees on the Merry Creek? Bound to be, yeah. And I know they did a lot of plantings so on the Merry Creek, especially to encourage the native bees, plantings of native flora that they like. Okay. So if, if you are someone who wants to become a beekeeper, then how can you recognise what hives look like and where to find them and, how, and what... Do what do you actually want to do if you do find a hive? Do you want to go in there and do you want to punch it up and then get stung a lot? What are you, or do you want to collect the hive? Can you even move bees? Yes, you can move bees if you find uh, bees that are in a roof or in a tree hollow, or sometimes they'll go in a possum box. <laughs> it's possible to transfer those bees into a box that people have designed to make it easy to look after them so it's very basic to catch a swarm you if they've built comb you'll get a knife you'll cut the comb out and you'll tie it with string in some frames that people have designed that hang in a box that we've designed and then you've got them in a controlled situation where we can look after them so how do you actually find a beehive and what do they look like in the wild? Well, you notice the insects coming and going. And human beings have developed techniques over the thousands of years to track down beehives in the forest. You'll stand and watch very patiently and you'll see a bee go by. And you'll notice what way it's flying and you'll walk that direction and then stop after you've lost sight of it and just wait again for another one to come. And as you get nearer the hive, the frequency of bees that you see goes up. And then finally, you'll see they're going in and out of a hollow in the tree. Wow, so I should become a bee stalker. You could. 
I could become a bee stalker. I'll find all the bees. <laughs> but you can just, you know, buy buy them off somebody that breeds bees. I don't want to do that. That's boring. Could be. So, is it true that bees, like, do dances? Yes, they've got quite a lot of ways of communicating. And one of them is to do dances in the hive. And uh, they... Uh, yeah, quite amazing. They do a, a dance to tell each other where flowers are. Um, and the dance has got two forms. If they're close, they just dance in a circle. And it's better to watch a YouTube to see the, the dances if you want to. But I'll give a quick explain. And if the flowers are further away, they do a figure of eight dance. And as they come through the axis of the figure of eight dance, they do a little shake. Of their body. And if it's a quick shake, the flowers are close. And if it's a long shake, the flowers are far away. And then they'll say, follow me. I'll guide you to them. Now, they don't say anything, but the bees know that if they follow the one that did the dance, it will also try to guide them to the flowers. And then for the last bit, they use their sense of smell to guide them in. Now, they've got some other dances that they do to handle workload in the hive. If the nursery bees are overwhelmed, they do a drunken dance <laughs> where they stagger and hold the comb, walk, stagger, hold the comb. And that means we're feeling overwhelmed in the nursery. Other bees, please come and help us in the nursery. Sometimes though, they think they've found the best lot of nectar in flowers they've ever seen and they want more bees foraging. So if they want more bees foraging, they'll go up to another bee and actually place their legs on the another bee and shake it like that, sort of shake their shoulders if it was people, but it's not people. And that says, I've found the best flowers ever. You've got to come off cleaning duty in the hive or nursery duty in the hive and look for flowers with me because there's so much honey out there and we've got to get on it. So that's a workload management dances that they do. So what happens if a bee lies? Like it dances saying, saying there's honey over there and there's not actually honey over there. Well, they never get upset if another bee's made a mistake. And with bees, there's always 10% of bees that don't do what everybody else is doing there's 10% of bees that look for new flowers somewhere else. Because often flowers, the nectar just runs out and the flower stops giving nectar and pollen. So the 10% that have been looking for new flowers, they say, well, what have you found? No, they don't say. They communicate with the dance where the new flowers are and they switch from the old flowers that have run out the new flowers so this is we we people would call that a pipeline of work so if you've got a lot of work going on you'd always like some that's waiting to be done so that you're not idle so the bees organize them like cells like that so they're never idle there's a pipeline of flowers lined up for them so what happens if they so what happens if they run out of flowers in their local area they can starve if they run out completely, but they will fly up to 
seven or eight kilometers and they're always searching for new flowers in that big radius around them but if they've got to fly too far they can run short of food and that's one of the reasons a beehive will die out is because they've starved to death oh that's sad yeah well it happens sometimes it happens quite a lot actually so i think our final question today is what would a perfect world look like to you a perfect world would be habitat preserved no more farming land made on the planet some of the farming land returned to natural habitat and we use our intelligence not to make more money for big corporations but we use our intelligence to allow all the animals on the planet to share it no more species lost people get looked after food shared whole place works properly so human intelligence is being perverted by human greed thanks for saying such a inspirational i'm i was going to say speech but it's not really a speech and it's re- really really it's really helpful to know all of this stuff that i've learned this podcast and it's just really good to catch up with someone and finally make another podcast and it's been really great having you on here thanks for great questions Congratulations, you've made it to the end of this Noodlebugs podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Look out for other Noodlebugs podcasts that may be coming soon, and have a good day.